And uh, I want to dive right in today and skip ahead. We're going to be in Joshua 23, but just by brief summary here. Um, Israel's called to possess the land. They get off to a good start. They encounter the anger of God in chapter 7, like we saw last week, which shows us God doesn't operate on a double standard. Okay? Uh, you act like the nations, I'll treat you like the nations. And uh, we're going to skip ahead now to chapter 23 and read it. And then uh, I'll pray and we'll, we'll, we'll catch up and summarize a little bit more. So here we go. Chapter 23 up there. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And you have seen all the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you've done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it's the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that at one word has failed of all the good things the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he's destroyed you from off this good land the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded, and go and serve other gods, and bow down to them. And the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall quickly perish from off the good land that he has given to you. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me if you like. Good Father, we thank you for the chance to get together tonight in uh, what is for many the, the first real week of the spring semester. That is to say, the most stressful, restless, awful week. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that uh, you're never stressed, weary, and distracted. You're attentive to your people. And so would you be kind, Lord, to meet with us tonight and minister to us. Lift up our hearts and minds to see you and to know you and to know your grace and love. And to see it in this text. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so uh, we're, we're fast-forwarding here in, uh, in chapter 23, and it's like we passed the fast, pushed the fast-forward button and skipped a lot 
further forward than we thought. We saw all kinds of things happen. And what we saw happen, you know, visually speaking, as we skip through, is Israel actually possessing the land. They were given the land of the Canaanites, and they possessed it. They took over cities, they moved in, and Joshua dispersed the individual allotments to each tribe, and they, they lived in their cities, and they settled down, and they had kids, and we see all these things happen. We see Joshua get old. And, uh, and here we are at the end. These folks are enjoying, you will, if you will, the land. They're at rest in the land, verse 1 tells us. And after God's anger in chapter 7 and all the striving and all the drama and all the battles, they get to rest and enjoy the fruit of their labor. This is sort of that, if you will, first week of May feel. It's that, it's that long sigh. Restful. Yeah, almost like that. It's that <laughs> long, restful sigh. After that long period of, of, of uh, toil and trouble. And uh, it's near the end for Joshua. He knows the time's almost up. And the old war hero emerges from wherever he's living and uh, gives a sort of last public address, sort of a state of the union at the same time. It starts off strong. He recounts all their past successes in verses 1 through 3. And he talks about how there's still work to do in verses 4 and 5. But there's reason to be optimistic. God's going to give it to you. You shall possess the land. And then, like some grumpy old curmudgeon, Joshua drifts into concerns and warnings, and he ends, he ends with anger, so right back where we were last week. In verse 16, if you look, you can see it there. The anger of the Lord, and I, I can imagine if I was there or you were there, and there were some people there thinking, old man, can't, can't you just enjoy the moment? Can't, can't you just enjoy the rest without worrying about the future worst-case scenario? Why you got to rain on our party with your old man finger-wagging lecture? Things are good. Why all the fear? Why all the warnings? Why all the anger? And there's a very good answer. It's that Joshua knows their clear and present danger. He knows their enemy. It's a, it's a, it's a danger that he knows will never rest. And it's a danger that he knows is incredibly deceptive. And it will bring with it suffering and slavery and destruction. And most disconcertingly, it's close. It's very close. In their midst, it is their own restless hearts. That's their greatest danger. And 3,000 years later, the threat is still just as real. That the making of our own ruin resides right here within us. And that if we, this is the good news, if we rightly understand what our hearts are like, then we will cling desperately to the God who knows us and loves us. That's the good news in this text, that if we rightly know what our hearts are like and the danger they are, then we'll cling desperately to the God that knows us and still loves us. So note takers, or the notes are on the side if you like, uh, here's what we're talking about. Rest, maybe with a question mark, rest. Our runaway hearts and the run after you, God. Okay? So, regarding rest, they have it. They're, they're, they have it externally anyway. They're dwelling in the land. God has given them rest from their enemies. He's promised that in the future, that yes, there are nations remaining. You have to conquer them. But, you know, God's like, you've got reason to believe I'll do this. Just like I've promised and delivered in the past, I will promise and deliver in the future. And, uh, and here we see, this is sort of how faith works, by the way. God tells them, look, look what I've done in the past. I promise I'll do it in the future. 
Faith in me is reasonable. You can trust me. I've, I've, I've done it in the past. I'll do it again. You can rest in me. So uh, they can rest in him because he's done what he's promised. But they cannot rest from him. And that's what the rest of the text is about. They can rest in the land because of what God's done for them. He's gracious, but they can't rest from him. And uh, the rest of the text turns to God's concern for them. In verse 6, he tells them, Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that's written in the law. You can't be lazy and apathetic and fulfill that. Be very strong to keep the law. Verse 11, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord. Uh, None of those sound particularly restful. It sounds like effort, striving in some ways. And uh, it's important to note, before we dive deeply into what these things mean, which we'll do in a moment, is that they, they all hinge on this very important word that's so easy to look over and miss. It's the word therefore. Therefore, be strong. Be careful, therefore. God is pointing out that what he's calling for is a response. I've been gracious to you. I've given you everything. I brought you into a relationship with me. Therefore, fulfill the law. Therefore, love me with your whole heart. This is not about earning my love. This is about responding in a relationship. And he's calling them to be responsible for the relationship he has with them. He's graciously loved them, fought for them, brought them into the land, provided for them, protected them. And he's saying, this, this is what it looks like to love me. And verse 6 tells us the standard. The standard is the God-given law. And it's easy for us, man, because who loves the law? We're supposed to. Who loves it? It's easy for us to have these, maybe even if we know we're supposed to love it, to have these conceptions of it as dry, boring, oppressive. And... Uh, there's, some, there's a there's sense in which some of those things can be true or certainly feel true. But the law is the shape of what it looks like to love God. The law was given to instruct God's people exactly what it looks like to love him and to love your neighbors. It, get, it defines the shape and contours of love. It's what the law was for. Instructing them and us how to love God and how to love others. It's the standard. And verse 11 is the ideal. It's what God wants. It's the steadfast love. Be careful to love the Lord your God. This is a persevering, personal, faithful love. And uh, all this just summed up really simply. You'll get this clear point. God wants his people to love him. He wants his people to love him. That looks like keeping the law. That looks like being aware of their hearts and pursuing him from the heart. Now, I want us to consider just for a second how different this is from the way we often think about the law. The way we, well, I'll just ask you, how do you often think of the law? When you're confronted by a rule or a law in God's word or a principle that you're not particularly fond of, or it was okay until now, but now there's something else you're interested in. And uh, do you ask yourself this, self, how does following this law I don't like right now actually help me love God? I'm going to think about it. Okay, I can see that. Okay, I'm going to do it anyway or not do it because that's what it looks like to love God. Or do we ask ourselves, self, just how far can I go in transgressing this law and pressing the boundaries of this law without, without actually breaking this law? How, how close can I dance to the fire without getting burned? How bad can I be without being bad? How much can I drink without being drunk? 
how much can I mess around without actually sleeping with someone? I mean, I can just keep going on and on and on, right? I can apply this in a thousand different ways. Um, that whole question, how far can I go, is the wrong question. It's the wrong question. It is not a question of love. That, that law, that, that, that question applied in a relationship is really saying this. Just how poorly can I treat someone I claim to love? Just how poorly can I love this person but still give off the appearance of caring for them? Do you understand what I'm getting at? That's what's going on here. God has said, this is what it looks like to love me. Keep my law. And we want to say, well, how, how much of it do we have to keep and still love you? Um, so God wants us to rest in him because he's trustworthy and loving, but we can't rest from him. We're responsible for the relationship. We're called to love him. The problem is our runaway hearts. And I'm going to talk about this part quite a bit, and then the last point will be pretty short. In, in verses 6 to 8, where uh, Joshua calls them to, to, to keep the law and uh, to, to be strong to do it, neither from the left or the right. I would love to preach a sermon on what that means. I don't have time for that. Um, he, he drives toward this. Why, why is it so important? Not just that you would love the Lord, but so that you may not mix with these nations. You see that up there? And then he, he mentions four things. Don't mention them. Don't swear by them. Don't serve them. Don't bow down to them. Don't worship their gods. Uh, God is concerned with their fidelity, their faithfulness. Uh, and then he says and sums it up. Don't do those things, but, verse 8, cling to the Lord. And that's a marriage word. I mean, that's, that's a, like, I'm done with you, and I'm with you, just you, for the rest of my life. That's... That's sort of the picture we have in the early books of Genesis, early chapters of Genesis, what it means to be in a close relationship, to cling. And uh, then he says in verse 11, we should, you see that word again, be careful to love God, to love the Lord your God. If you turn back and cling to the nations, there'll be a snare and a trap for you. You put it all together, and this is the picture, I think. It's pretty simple, actually. We are spiritually clingy. As creatures, we are spiritual we're spiritually clingy. We are made to worship. We were made to worship God. Uh, there, there are things wrong with us in our hearts. But the one thing that works is we still worship. We just don't always worship what we should. And so we cling to something. Uh, David Foster Wallace was a brilliant author, essayist, novelist, and now unfortunately deceased. He gave uh, what is a very well-known, somewhat famous a uh, commencement address at Kenyon College a few years before he uh, passed away. Uh, the address is called This is Water, and uh, it's, it's worth your consideration. I have no reason to believe that David Foster Wallace was a Christian, or even particularly spiritual, but he was a keen observer of American culture and what people are like. And uh, I'm going to quote him twice in the next few minutes. He says this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually... No such thing as atheism. He didn't say there aren't atheists. He said in the day-to-day trenches of real life, no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And uh, I think that's what we see in our text. We have runaway worshiping hearts that are going to cling to something uh, because they're almost never content. Because selfishly, we almost think, always think we deserve something better than what we have. 
And so the threat that's posed in our text is that we will compromise or conform. And uh, when you look at verses 6 and 7 and 11 and 12, uh, what immediately comes to the forefront of our face, I think, as you read it is, hey, Israel's dropped down into the middle of these nations. They're not, they're not like the nations. The nations, the Canaanites, are all polytheistic. They have hundreds of gods. Um, uh, Israel has one god. Uh, they're violent by nature. They're sexually immoral. And this is not just me, like, I'm not being a harsh, judgmental person like this. A- any scholar would pre- agree with me. And it was bound up in their religious practices. They, they would sacrifice their children to one of their gods. They had temple prostitutes. And Israel stuck out like a sore thumb. They were just completely different. And they were called to be different. And uh, the, the, the threat here is of compromise and conformity. How to be among the nations, because God's going to drop them right in the middle of Canaan. And Canaan is actually right in the middle of the ancient world. Right in the middle. Persia, Rome, Greece, Egypt. You know where they all pass through? Canaan. North, south, right through the middle. God planted them in the equivalent of Breezewood, Pennsylvania. You drive through Breezewood, you're like, why is this place so stinking busy? Seriously, Breezewood's horrible. Why is this place so stinking busy? But it's because all these major interstates from north, south, east, and west converge there. That was Canaan. God put them right in the middle of the ancient world to show off what God was like. They were different. They were called to be different. But the threat here is, surrounded by the nations, they would compromise and conform. The question is, how do you be among the nations without becoming just like them? How do you be... How do you do this without becoming reclusive, hateful, vengeful people uh, instead of being uh, the blessing that they're called to be? Uh, Jesus called us, called them to be salt and light. How do you do that? And I've just got some principles here that I think sort of come from the text and from the rest of Scripture. So here you go. Uh, one, I think you have to acknowledge the attractiveness, how attractive this can be. You have to be realistic about how attractive those things out there can be, or how attractive the things right outside your own eyes can be. Um, you know, how attractive their worship can be. Israel worshiped in a tent. They didn't have a building yet. They worshiped in a tent. They have like nice temples and hot sacred prostitutes. And, uh, and then uh, the reality, uh, it goes on to talk about not marrying them. Like, I, I'm pretty sure some of those Canaanite men and women were fairly attractive. The reality is there would be things about their culture and their peoples that you would want. And if you set up some straw man, then you're just completely unprepared for it. Acknowledge how attractive uh, the, the temptation can be. Secondly, you got to be aware how strong the pressure to conform can be. Again, Israel was surrounded by people not like them. They were the weird ones. There's no one in the ancient world that was really monotheistic. One God? He spoke to you and you have words? You have prophets? What? It's just different. Um, And the scriptures tell us, and Paul tells us in Romans, this is the way the world is. The world is actively at work, just, it's not even even like trying to, but just by nature of Christians being different in the world, you have a tremendous amount of pressure being exerted on you. Uh, Paul put it this way, don't be conformed to this world. In other words, the world is actively exerting pressure, not just on you, but on everyone, to conform. It, it's just groupthink. It's the intellectual atmosphere. It's what's fashionable and plausible in any given time or generation or place. And uh, it, it can be hard to swim upstream in those places. And Paul says you have to be aware 
that the world is trying to press you into conformity. And the same would have been true for the Israelites. Um, third, uh, this, this one I think is pretty interesting. You have to beware of your self-assurance. Your own self-assurance. It's really easy to assume in your relationship with the world out there or any particular temptation, I've got this. I've got this. I can manage this. I can dance close to the fire and not get burned. I can carry and do the dangerous things and, and be okay. And, uh, you know, Joshua warns them in verse 13, you mess with these things and they will be a snare and a trap to you. That's very, very interesting language that showed up earlier in Moses and it'll show up all over the place in Judges because they don't listen. Uh, who's, show, who's watched the show Justified? Anyone know what the show Justified is? My goodness. Okay, well, um, Justified was a multi-Emmy award-winning television show uh, starring a U.S. marshal. Uh, that's the main protagonist named Raylan Givens, who's a smooth-talking, fast-shooting, shoot-first-ask-questions-later U.S. marshal. And uh, he has a way of getting in, like, Western-style draw gunfights with people. There's one uh, scene somewhere like season three. He's uh, in the dark facing off with this guy named Danny. This is in Harlan County, Kentucky. And if you watch the show, you would have to assume that Harlan County is the most godforsaken place in the world. Um, how can there be so many criminals and awful people in one county? But anyway, uh, this particular criminal is uniquely stupid. His name is Danny. And this is their conversation. Uh, Danny asks, how far do you reckon we are? And Raylan says, oh, I don't know, 20 feet, give or take. And Danny says, that's far enough. Raylan says, far enough for what? I'm good to 50, 75 yards. 21 feet is like standing right in front of a target and shooting it. Um, the question is, how good of a shot are you? And uh, Danny then pulls out his gun and drops it. At which Raylan looks at him and says, Danny, have you thought this thing through? And, uh, and then Danny pulls out a knife. And uh, he, he said earlier, you, you've never heard of the 21-foot rule? And Raylan says, no, never heard of it. And uh, again, I'm good to 75 yards. Well, the, the 21-foot rule is this basic idea that if you have a gun and someone else has, well, someone else has a gun, they haven't pulled it, and you have a knife, that you could attack them before they pull their gun. That's the basic premise. So uh, Danny pulls his knife and charges Raylan, and it looks like he actually may be successful in knifing down the U.S. Marshal. But Danny, halfway there, falls into a hole. And when he comes up, he comes up with a knife stuck right through his chin, into his head. And uh, Raylan calmly stands over him and says, Gosh, Danny, I didn't see that hole. I would have told you if I had. Uh, I think, uh, again, it's a, it's a really graphic pointed image. But um, that is exactly the kind of language that Joshua and Moses is evoking right here. That, that we carry in our actions and in our pride and presumption the means to destroy ourselves. We mess around with things that are dangerous, and we think we see it all, how things will play out, that we're in control, but we don't see everything. We don't see everything. And these things are indeed a snare and a trap, and we carry within us the means of suffering and destruction. We think we can escape the consequences. He says in verse 13, you, you will not escape. And uh, fourthly, okay, so third was be aware of your self-assurance. Fourthly, lastly, hey, you just need to know your heart. You need to know that your heart is a runaway heart. 
it's, uh, and, it's, and as it runs away, it's almost always probably looking for trouble in some way. Uh, one of the famous theologians of uh, about 500 years ago said, our hearts are idle factories. We're just constantly pumping out new, wonderful ideas or things that we really want, that we think will give us joy and life and meaning. And when we find them, we seize on them and say, you, you are the thing, you are the person that's going to fulfill me. I am going to serve you and bow down to you and worship you. And it doesn't always take the forms of worship. It might not feel like a Sunday morning, but you're devoted to it. You think this is the thing. You're clingy. So our hearts are clingy. And because they're clingy and uh, often run away to the wrong kind of place and the wrong kind of God, compromise and conformity are always a threat. And uh, David Foster Wallace, again, uh, was right on with this. He said, the compelling reason, again, he wasn't a Christian, but listen to this wisdom. The compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of a God or spiritual type thing to worship, like he doesn't have words for it, some spiritual type thing of worship, is that pretty much anything else that you worship, listen to this, this is snare language. Anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, I'll just say success, my friends, if they are where you tap real meaning in your life, you will never have enough. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you almost always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they grieve you. If you worship power, being in control, my control freak friends, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. If you worship your intellect, I'm sure no one here does that. If you worship your intellect and being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And uh, Wallace is talking about adult life. He's a grown man. But man, almost every single one of these applies in some way. Right here in your life every day on this campus. And, uh, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years, friends. And I know my own heart after 40 years of of, uh, a runaway heart. We look for life and joy and fulfillment and relationships. Often with people that we should not be dating. Number one cause of doubt my friends, number one cause of my Christian students over the years going through massive periods of doubt is dating someone they should not be dating. It's just true over and over. Uh, The desire to be liked and approved so much that you deprive yourself of food and sleep. The, 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 The things that you're willing to do or not do for social approval because of peer pressure uh, the, the criticism you're willing to take or not take, the things you're willing to stand up for or not stand up for because you don't want your peers to think you're stupid because you're a Christian. I, I don't want to dismiss how significant these things are. Underneath a lot of them are really good desires, God-given desires for good things. But, but we make them ultimate or we put them on the wrong person and they become idols. And... Uh, I just want you to consider for a second, just for a second. What reason do you have to trust your restless heart? Really, what reason do you have to trust your restless heart? You've got to do better than like my culture tells me to. 
Oprah, Disney, and every movie you've seen since you were seven years old tells you to. You've got to do better. Really, look at the evidence. In your life and the lives of the people around you, what reason do you have to trust it? Because Scripture tells us and our experience tells us that more often than not, our runaway hearts run us right into trouble. Last point, final point, quick point. There's a God that runs after us. This text ends, friends, in anger. It ends with, with Joshua telling them, listen, your runaway heart will run you right into a trap, right into suffering, thorns in your eyes. You catch that one? Scourges on your flesh. I mean, this is pretty awful. And it gets worse. Uh, he goes on and makes this argument. He's like, hey, guys, you remember how God fulfilled every single promise? Every word he said a blessing. You remember how he did every single one? You can see them sort of nodding their head. He's like, yes, God is faithful to his words. No words of his fail ever. Yeah. Just like that, it tells us in verses 14 and 15, every single curse that he promised, if you walk away and worship, every, and worship other gods, you forsake the covenant, you turn your back on him and chase every, uh, every other thing in the created universe to find joy and pleasure and fulfillment, every single curse he will be faithful to fulfill. He will. He will follow through. He's a God of his word. The end of this is cursing. You see in verse 16. And the problem is, Israel is a runaway people. We're going to go into, not next week, but the week after next, we're going to go to the book of Judges. And the whole book is them running away. It's a, it's a pretty ugly book. There's no reason not to come. It's a good reason to come. There's all kinds of live action, murder, intrigue. You should come. Um, but they're a runaway people. Over and over, and, and God keeps running after them. And, and then uh, you come to the New Testament, and, uh, and we see the same thing. We have a runaway world, and God comes. He comes. He's persistent in his pursuit. He doesn't give up. And in the New Testament, he comes all the way down in the person of Jesus. Um, my, my kids have a, a, man, I'm probably on my fourth version of this book. Fifth version of, of uh, what's that book called? Uh, give me a second. I know this. Good Night Moon. We've gone through like five copies of Good Night Moon. Three or four versions of Runaway Bunny. So if you're not familiar with the Runaway Bunny, then come and talk to me. We need to talk about your parents. Um, the uh, Runaway Bunny is a very simple story, okay? It's about a little bunny that wants to run away from his mom. And uh, he comes to her and says, Mom, I'm running away. And his mom says, if you run away, I'll run after you because you're my little bunny. And, uh, all right. Okay. And then, uh, if I had it, I would show you, but it's a little cardboard book and you wouldn't be able to see it. Um, and, uh, the little bunny keeps coming up with things he's going to run away and become, like to hide a rock, a crocus, a bird, a sailboat. And his mom keeps coming up with how she's going to pursue him. She'll be a mountain climber, a gardener, a tree to land in, the wind to blow him, uh, into port. No matter where the little bunny goes, his mother pursues him. And, uh, man, it's a, it's a great little story. And uh, it, it's a very similar story to our own. We have runaway hearts. We say to God by our actions, and sometimes, if we're being honest, even with our words, I'm going to run away from you, at least for now, because I'm going to chase after this thing that I think will make me happier. Because actually, I think I deserve better than what you're giving me, and because I think they're better than you. Almost never are we brave enough to actually say that's what we're thinking. But we do it in our actions pretty often. And God says to us in the person of Jesus, If you run away, I will run after you. 
I will come down and I'll become a man and I'll chase after you. And, and when you've gone so far as to earn death, I will actually, I will become a curse for you. I'll die the death that you deserve for you. Friends, I don't, I don't speak direct. Uh, our idols, your idols, my idols, our idols, they are stupid things. They're stupid things that we pursue. And our hearts, again, I have many years of experience on this, they're foolish, restless wanters that carry us everywhere. But there's a God that knows your heart and loves you and wants you. And if you know yourself and your heart, then you should know that there's no one, no thing in this world that will love you like Jesus will. So let's cling to him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for what you do that no one else would ever do for us. Know us perfectly. Love us deeply. Give your life for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see ourselves as we are. And uh, I don't doubt, Lord, that there are people here who heard this that said, I don't know what you're talking about, man. That's not me. I've got my stuff together. And uh, Lord, I pray you would do the kind, hard work of, of showing those individuals their hearts. Do it in such a way that you don't cause them despair or ruin them. But help them to see how they're unloving, hypocritical, 